0: Welcome to this special edition program on new directions in immunotherapy of cancer. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with Dr. David McDermott to obtain an update on immunotherapy of renal cell cancer and melanoma, and to begin, he provided an overview of where we are with renal cell cancer. So
1: sort of looking at it broadly, the older treatments, cytokines, could be looked at as sort of T-cell agonists or pressing on the accelerator for the immune system, driving T-cells to be more active, to be able to kill targets more effectively. So, for example, interleukin-2, when it was first identified, was called T-cell growth factor. So it's essentially a growth factor for T-cells. But it drives a variety of T cells, not just effector cells, which we think of as being able to identify and kill cancer, but also regulatory T cells. So one of its Achilles heels is that it's very good at driving regulatory T cells. So in some ways, it both turns on and off an immune response that you need to fight cancer. In a similar way, interferon probably has more effects, not just on T cells, but it's thought to have some anti angiogenic effects and some anti proliferative effects as well, but also a stimulant.
0: Any comments specifically about high dose interleukin 2? Right now, this therapy continues to be used only in a limited number of places, but I know it's used regularly at your center.
1: Interleukin 2 was the first drug approved by the FDA for the treatment of metastatic kidney cancer in 1992. It got approved based on its ability to produce durable responses in a small subset of patients. It was basically approved by Phase two data. It's never shown a survival advantage in any large trial. So it helps a minority of patients treated, but the benefits can be dramatic, meaning the patients who get responses, about half of those responses last years, sometimes decades But the response rates, even in the best studies, were 20 25% in the most recent study with high-dose IL-2. And the toxicity, as everyone knows, was dramatic. So patients often needed to be treated, specialized centers, and sometimes in the intensive care unit. So the application of this agent was relatively limited. At the same time, other investigators were looking at interferons and combinations of low-dose interferons, often with interleukin-2, And if you look at the totality of those investigations, there seems to be a small survival advantage seen with the application of interferon, which, while it was never FDA-approved in the United States, it became sort of the de facto standard of care, and it was approved for use in Europe. So it was probably the most widely applied immunotherapy for kidney cancer. When the targeted VEGF pathway-targeted agents came around, essentially they replaced interferon for the application in kidney cancer, and the use of immunotherapy, which was relatively limited, became even less. So the application of, for example, Hidocyl-2 has gone down over the last several years because of these newer agents that can be given in the community and can extend progression-free survival and probably overall survival when used in sequence.
0: So what about the checkpoint inhibitors, particularly anti-CTLA-4 and the anti-PD-1, pdl one antibodies, where exactly do they work and how do they work? Well,
1: the agent that's gone through the most clinical testing so far, it's been the longest in the clinic, is a CTLA-4 blocking antibodies. There are several that are in development. There's one that's FDA-approved, ipilimumab, which is FDA-approved right now for metastatic melanoma. It's the first agent ever to show the ability to improve survival in patients with metastatic melanoma. And it works by blocking an important immune checkpoint on T cells. In fact, it's probably the most important immune checkpoint, which is the so-called CTLA-4 which is expressed after a T-cell is activated, meaning normally it's not a major regulator. But when a T-cell becomes activated, CTLA-4 is expressed on the surface of the T-cell. And when it engages its ligand, that leads to the shutdown of the T-cell, which is exactly what you want to do if your infection is under control. It's exactly what you want to do if you want to prevent autoimmunity. But it's not what you want to do if you're dealing with a chronic problem like a cancer, which requires a much more active and ongoing immune response. So this is a way of taking T cells that might be dormant, that might be surrounding a cancer, but not controlling it, not killing it, and making them active, But it's a global process, meaning because CTLA-4 is so critical, when you give someone a CTLA-4-blocking antibody, you're waking up a lot of their T-cells. It's a much more central process. And that's probably why we see significant side effects with these agents that can be both severe and difficult to manage if not recognized early. But interestingly, with the knowledge of what to expect and early intervention and the fact that it seems like... Immunosuppression, which works to manage the side effects, doesn't dampen the anti tumor response. The side effect profile has actually improved over time, meaning we've gotten a lot better managing this drug than when it was first in clinical trials and then even when it was first FDA approved several years ago. In the case of PD1 and PDL1, the checkpoint is important, but it's not as central as CTLA4. And it's probably, interestingly, more important in the site of the tumor, more important in the periphery as opposed to a central process. So think of it as something that's actually regulating the interaction at the site of the cancer, which is probably thought to be at least one of the reasons why, A, the effects on the cancer are so significant. And B, why the toxicity seems to be less, because it's a less central regulator of the immune response. So blocking it doesn't activate as many T cells, doesn't cause as much global issues for the patient. And the interaction normally, as I mentioned before, is an interaction between the ligand for PD-1 or pdl one which is normally expressed on antigen-presenting cells, and it normally will shut off a T cell that expresses PD-1, which like CTLA-4 comes up on the surface of the T-cell once it's activated and causes it to tamp down, to shut off. But now we've learned that tumors can use this mechanism that antigen presenting cells usually use, tumors can co-opt this PDL1 expression to defend themselves against T cell attack. So if a T cell is recognizing a tumor, the tumor can often express PDL1 on its surface and act as a defense mechanism. If you want to use maybe barbed wire as analogy, sort of can defend itself against immediate attack in the tumor microenvironment. But when you can block that interaction between the tumor expressing PDL1 and the T cells that are there at the tumor, you can see significant impact not only in tumor shrinkage, but in rapid response, because those T cells otherwise would be killing the tumor if it wasn't for this blockade.
0: So, let's talk about clinical research data in patient care, starting out with renal cell, particularly focusing on the checkpoint inhibitors.
1: So, in part because of the history of kidney cancer, because it was thought to be an immune sensitive. Therapy. It was one of, when the initial agents entered phase one trials, it was one of the tumor types that folks thought. It might be sensitive. So patients were enrolled who had kidney cancer. It wasn't anything necessarily more sophisticated than that. There was also a sense that pdl one expression was an important mediator of outcome in kidney cancer. So those patients were enrolled in trials. And what we've known for several years, from the original Julie Bramer publication in JCO, and then subsequently with the Suzanne Topalian-led publication in New England Journal in 2012, is that a subset of patients with kidney cancer, given a PD-1 pathway blocking antibody, can have major responses. In the Topalian experience, There were 34 patients treated with nivolumab, and the response rate was 29%, with another 27% of patients having stable disease for over six months. So a very encouraging, admitted early signal in a small group of patients, seeing both significant tumor shrinkage, but durable benefit. Ultimately, that needed to be sort of clarified in much larger trials. And now we have a much larger data set to look at of patients treated with PD-1 blockade, with nivolumab a phase two trial was reported at ASCO, and Dr. Mozart was the lead author. This has subsequently been published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, looking at, I believe, 170 patients, 180 patients, looking at three different dose levels with this antibody and seeing, once again, significant responses, this time in only about 20% of patients. So the response rate went down from phase one to phase two. But we're also seeing a durable benefit, benefit benefit-lasting off-drug, which to me is the most exciting benefit about immunotherapy is that some patients, a subset of the subset who benefit also seem to get a benefit off treatment. They seem to enter remission and manageable toxicity. But while the response rate was lower, the overall survival for this cohort of the patients treated on the phase two trial was on average about 25 months. Now, ultimately, that needs to be confirmed in a phase three trial which is ongoing, which we hope to get results from later this year where nivolumab is being compared in patients who'd failed prior standard therapy to everolimus. So, hopefully, we'll be able to actually improve overall survival in that setting. There's been other data as well published this year with PDL1 blocking antibodies. The large phase one trial experience with a PDL1 blocking antibody showed a similar story major responses, a durable benefit, about half of the patients achieving some clinical benefit, and that agent is going forward in much larger clinical trials as we speak. And another interesting aspect is we've already started going from single-agent larger trials in kidney cancer to combinations, which we can certainly talk about more, because it seems like in kidney cancer, the benefit of single agents is somewhat limited, and we're going to need combination approaches to move this benefit to more patients and potentially move it to the front line.
0: Let's talk a little bit about toxicities, both of anti-PD-1 strategy as well as CTLA-4 antibodies, and particularly the combination Can you kind of go through the numbers and your own clinical experiences?
1: So the side effect list, so if you just looked at a list of side effects of both agents, they would be fairly similar. The most common side effects you see with these agents are flu-like symptoms, so fatigue, decreased appetite, fever, often low-grade, generalized aches, those kind of things. The more serious side effects fall into that sort of autoimmune-like category where patients develop diarrhea from colitis, increased LFTs from hepatitis, abnormal endocrine function, including hypopituitarism, panhypopit, and skin reactions. There are some more rare side effects that do occur, including pneumonitis, which we can talk about in detail, some neurological Side effects that seem autoimmune in nature, but in general, while the side effect profiles somewhat overlap between these two agents, the incidence of severe side effects, significant grade 3 and 4 side effects, seems higher with CTLA 4 blockade than with PD1, PDL1 blockade, as we mentioned. The number of patients who can complete a course of PD1 blockade is much higher. So for example, in the 300 patients who were treated in the original nivolumab phase one trial, only 6% of those patients had to come off for side effects, which is an impressive number. We now have Phase 3 randomized data, which I thought was fascinating in melanoma, comparing nivolumab to an old chemotherapy regimen, both in the frontline and in the ipilimumab failure settings. And what you see there, not only is there, not surprisingly, more activity than chemotherapy with PD-1 blockade, but far less toxicity. So the response rates are three times higher with PD-1 blockade and melanoma. The toxicity rates, and particularly the severe grade 3 and 4 side effects, are two or three times less with PD-1 blockade. So we have developed a more effective, more tolerable therapy. In the case of ipilimumab, the side effects are similar but more intense. For example, diarrhea and colitis is a bigger issue. Hepatitis is a bigger issue. But what we've learned there in this field over the last several years, initially we were concerned that early intervention with aggressive immunosuppression would be a problem because much in the way, like in bone marrow transplant, when you immunosuppress someone who has graft-versus-host disease, you often make their cancer more likely to return, you often set them up for opportunistic infections. It seems like in the solid tumor world where you have these autoimmune-like side effects, when you hit someone with steroids, for example, you don't seem to make it more likely that their cancer returns. And also the incidence of opportunistic infections is quite low. So we're now much more aggressive about intervening on patients who develop colitis, for example, and early intervention makes a big difference in outcome and the severity of the side effects. But no question, patients need to be educated, particularly with CTLA-4 blockade, because unlike interleukin-2, for example, or bone marrow transplant, where most of the side effects happen in front of you, here the patients are responsible for reporting them. They're your first defense. And they often don't, unless they're well-educated, will often say, well, this is just diarrhea. This is what I should expect. you know. And clinicians who are not necessarily informed might think of this. The diarrhea these patients experience is similar to, say, arenatecan diarrhea for a GI tumors But unless you act quickly, the diarrhea can get problematic, and there have been patients who've had complications with bleeding and perforation from these agents, much less now than before, but as the agents become more commonly used in the community, it's something we need to watch, particularly as you asked about combinations. Combinations, we're seeing the same side effects, so we're not seeing new side effects, but we're seeing more of them, meaning the the rates of grade 3, 4 toxicity are significantly higher when you add these two methods together, CTLA-4 and PD-1 block. And they happen sooner. So you need to pay attention. And there are probably fewer patients who receive the complete amount of planned therapy when you put these two agents together.
0: So in terms of the use of corticosteroids in general for these autoimmune problems, obviously there are different types of problems. And I guess the approach might be somewhat different, particularly in terms of how sick the patient might be. But for example, with colitis, what's the typical initial treatment schedule you utilize? And how does that compare to, say, when you're using corticosteroids for, say, pneumonitis?
1: Well, I think I become much more aggressive about treating colitis than I was, you know, five or six years ago. If you look at the algorithms that have gotten much better about managing these, it's generally when a patient... Has had more than six bowel movements a day where they reach grade three toxicity, that it's mandated to use a steroid therapy. And oftentimes, when they're having that many bowel movements a day, you need to go to IV steroids because they can't absorb oral steroids. So that often means admitting a patient to the hospital. But I become, particularly with patients who are not on a trial, I become much more aggressive about implementing steroids. So more in patients in the three to six bowel movements a day, I'm often more likely to put them on steroids. I'm also less likely to give them another dose of ipilimumab if they're having any loose bowel movements. Meaning instead of following the prescribed schedule of every three-week treatment with CTLA-4, I often hold a treatment. If patients are having side effects, I often hold to see where it's going to peak Because in my experience, if someone is having a side effect and then you dose them again they're almost certainly, that side effect is going to be amplified. So I'm not in a rush to do that. I often wait for it to improve till it gets closer to grade one and then go ahead and dose them. If patients get severe colitis, they often need not only hospitalization, which sometimes can be several days, or I've had patients in the hospital for several weeks, but it can often require additional immunosuppression, and infliximab is often used. Infliximab often works and works quickly, but I become much more willing to use that in patients earlier on in their course. After, say, several days of steroids, if you're not seeing improvement, adding that quickly. But it's not always easy to add because it's, while an effective drug, it's an expensive drug, it's a hard drug to give in the hospital. So we often try to have these patients improve, become outpatients, and give them the infliximab as an outpatient.
0: How long do you usually continue the corticosteroids?
1: At least a month. You don't start to taper until they've improved, and then you taper them over a month. So, the average person with grade three, four colitis may be on steroids for four to six weeks. But it's relatively uncommon for them to have another flare, but if they're managed cautiously. The important thing to realize sort of two things one is early intervention matters. If they're going to be on steroids for a long time, you need to consider treating them to prevent opportunistic infections. So things like Bactrim are often added for PCP prophylaxis. So you need to monitor them for steroid toxicity. But if you do those things, you can successfully manage patients through a course of this treatment. But there is a learning curve. So you know it's easy for me to say how we do things, and we're much more confident than we were when we first used this agent. But this class of agents is very different than what we're used to in general oncology. So there is a learning curve, and there are a lot of different people, not only the patients, not only the physicians, but the nursing staff and the consultants who often need to be educated about the differences between these agents and other agents. But it may turn out, and there's emerging data on this subject, that just like in the case of interleukin-2, where autoimmune side effects seem to be associated with benefit, it may be that patients who are getting these side effects may also be more likely to benefit that's something that needs to be explored in further studies. As it relates to PD 1 and PD L1, I think the average oncologist who's in a busy practice and has a lot going on will be, I think, very pleasantly impressed. By what it's like to treat someone with this new form of immune therapy, particularly when compared to some of the other options that they have. While there is some learning to go on, the incidence of severe side effects is relatively low. We're talking about 10 or 15% in clinical trials. The number of patients who have to come off treatment for side effects is even lower. And you can give these treatments to patients for a long time. Whether you need to or not is a separate question, which is an interesting one. But the side effects seem to happen, just like the positive effects seem to happen largely in the first six months of treatment. But unlike an agent like Taxol, where you could never imagine giving, you know, 18 months, two years of treatment because you'd run into cumulative problems, you can give these agents for six, 12, 18 months, and it's very uncommon to develop new issues, new problems, sort of a pileup of side effects. Patients often get what they're going to get, and then they do fine afterwards. And patients are reluctant to stop treatment if it's working. So I think the question is, will they use PD-1? Absolutely, yes. The issue about whether they use combinations and whether they start using CTLA-4 blockade more, for example, because it's the combination that has the most interesting results, will in part be driven by how motivated they are to manage side effects. But also, I think from a practical standpoint, right now the exciting data is in melanoma. If we start seeing similar exciting data in lung cancer and in kidney cancer, particularly lung cancer, I think people will be more compelled to take the plunge and try the combinations. They'll want to offer their patients, even though it's a subset of patients, that durable benefit if we're able to double the durable benefit that we see with single-agent therapy. I think until we see that, though, Initially, most of the use will be with PD-1 blockade alone and that the referrals will happen when someone fails PD-1 blockade. Because in the end, I don't think, while this feels like the beginning of an immunotherapy revolution, if the patients are just being treated in academic centers... We haven't accomplished as much as I would like us to accomplish. I'd like to see immunotherapy reach the community. I'd like to see the benefit that we see with interleukin-2 of a durable benefit that lasts off drug, I'd like to see that be available to patients locally. Because what I've realized over the years is if it's not available locally, many patients will not be able to get that benefit. And that would be a big disappointment for the field if we can't bring these approaches locally to the majority of patients.
0: Let's add in another interesting player in the field, anti-PD-L1 antibodies. What are they? What do we know about them? Again, starting with renal cell. So
1: if PD-1 blocking antibodies bind to PD-1 on T cells, PD-L1 blocking antibodies bind to the ligand PD-L1 where it's found, either on the tumor or in, we think, the antigen-presenting cells that are in the tumor microenvironment. So, for example, dendritic cells that might be presenting antigen to T cells. So it's blocking the opposite end of this interaction between PD-1 and pdl one but it in many ways has a similar outcome, which is it takes T cells that would have been inactivated if they've been able to engage with pdl one and prevents that engagement and allows them to remain active and potentially be reinvigorated and kill tumor that it might have otherwise not be able to deal with. We've seen a number of PDL1 antibodies in the clinic already. There are several companies, just like there are several PD1 antibodies, there are several PDL1 antibodies. We've seen some encouraging findings, once again, across a variety of solid tumors, including kidney cancer, melanoma, lung cancer. Interestingly, in bladder cancer, some very exciting data with a PDL1 antibody it was just published in Nature last month, of all places. And we're seeing, once again, a similar story, responses in a subset of patients. The responses seem higher in patients whose tumors express pdl one not surprisingly. The responses can be dramatic in some patients and durable, meaning lasting months and sometimes years, and in some patients lasting once the treatment has discontinued. There are some who believe that in some tumor types, the response rates may be lower with PD-L1-blocking antibodies than PD-1-blocking antibodies, but that hasn't been proven by any stretch yet, but they also are seemingly, in some ways, maybe less toxic than PD-1 blocking antibodies. While, as I mentioned, PD-1 antibody blockade is not all that toxic in comparison to other prior immunotherapies, PD-L1 is probably a step down in toxicity, which is important, particularly if you're talking about combinations, particularly if you're talking about other areas where toxicity will be more important, where patients might be older and sicker, and the side effects of these immunotherapies may be a bigger issue.
0: The one toxicity I've heard discussed in that regard is pneumonitis. Why is that?
1: Well, pneumonitis is seen with both classes. It's probably more common with PD-1 blockade than PD-L1 blockade. But it's a challenge, particularly in lung cancer patients, which I'll explain in a second. But it's essentially the same mechanism, meaning if you block this interaction, there are certain T cells that will react against the host as well as the tumor. And we see inflammation in the lung, which can present as a variety of different syndromes. It is a tricky condition to manage because it's harder to detect than, say, colitis, where there's a change in bowel pattern, or hepatitis, where there's a clear blood test. Clinical tests, for example, checking someone's oxygen saturation or pulmonary function tests or things like that, a physical exam, don't reliably pick up pneumonitis where we've been able to detect it in patients. It's often on CAT scan, which is obviously only done periodically. And it's done sometimes when you have a suspicion if someone develops a new dry cough, for example, but it's most often diagnosed incidentally. Now, fortunately, the incidence of pneumonitis with both classes of agents is relatively low. But in the early days, particularly with PD-1 blocking antibodies, there were several deaths due to severe pneumonitis, often that occurred very quickly in some patients. Since that time, and this goes back now two or three years, we've gotten much better at recognizing that A, this can happen, and B, if suspected, it needs to be worked up very quickly and treated very quickly. But it also improves quickly if it's identified quickly, meaning it often, unlike, say, colitis or hepatitis, which may have a more chronic course, if you diagnose it and diagnose it correctly, patients can get better with steroids pretty quickly.
0: But is there a biologic or pharmacologic reason to think there'd be less pneumonitis with an anti pdl one aging compared to anti-PD-1?
1: There's a theory, but we don't have necessarily proof. But both from preclinical models and from the assumption of how these agents work, is that when you block PD1 with an antibody, a PD1 engages both PDL1 and PDL2 on antigen presenting cells and on tumors potentially, whereas a PDL1 antibody only blocks the interaction between PDL1 and PD1, leaving PDL2 open. And able to do its thing. So it's potentially possible that because PDL2 expression is not blocked on antigen presenting cells in certain areas like the lung, parenchyma, that this is a way of still inactivating T cells that might damage the lung. So it allows a potential protective mechanism against autoimmune complications to remain in place, whereas PD1 blockade takes that out because it blocks signaling through PDL1 and PDL2.
0: What do we know right now in terms of indirect comparisons, particularly in terms of efficacy in terms of anti-PD1 antibodies and the two that you've mentioned have been Nivolumab and Pembrolizumab and PDL1 antibodies. And you mentioned the one MDL agent. Any way to differentiate them right now?
1: I get that question a lot because I think people are trying to sort of decide, you know, which of these agents will have a larger market, a larger impact on patients. I think the short answer is right now there may be differences between classes of agents. So, for example, I mentioned how PD-L1 antibodies in certain cases in certain tumor types may be somewhat less active but also seem less toxic whereas PD-1 class of agents like pembrolizumab and nivolumab are seemingly, in certain cases, maybe more active and maybe somewhat more toxic, which may have implications for how we combine these agents going forward. That's not true with every PD-1-blocking antibody that's been in the clinic. There are some that are designed differently that probably have less impact on solid tumors than others, but the bottom line is a variety of these agents are active, And we already have a sense that single agents work. The questions going forward is, are we smart enough to figure out the best combinations, the best applications of these? They all may not get FDA approved, but they all have some degree of activity.
0: And if any of these agents were to become approved right now, at least in renal cell, how would you utilize them? Well, I think... Or how would you like to? Oh,
1: right. That's a better question because I can actually answer that one. My bias, which is pretty obvious based on this interview, is I like to give patients a chance at a durable benefit, potentially one that will lead to remission as their initial treatment, if possible, because it will preclude the application of these other agents, which decreases the side effects they'll be exposed to, decreases the cost, the whole thing. So that's been my bias with interleukin-2, trying to keep its place in the front line, But that being said, it needs to be given to the right patient, and we need to do a much better job than we've done with IL-2 at identifying the appropriate patient to get this treatment. You know, what are the best biomarkers that might predict for outcome? And there's at least some hope in the case of PD-1 pathway blockade that we may be able to enrich the subset of patients who will benefit a little better than we've done with interleukin-2. But I would like to use it as soon as possible in the right patient But practically, that may be hard in kidney cancer because, as I mentioned, the single agent activity is not tremendous based on the phase two data. You know, a lot of patients are not benefiting. And we already have active agents for untreated patients, and we know a sequence of these agents, you know, TKI followed by TKI followed by mTOR can probably extend survival. So at the moment, until we develop better biomarkers, it's going to be hard to gain a clear single-agent approval for any of these agents that we've talked about given those issues.
0: Although, again, as we say in terms of this issue of how you would like to use these agents, None of the TKIs are all that great in terms of quality of life, and I don't think they cause long-term remissions. So if you have a patient who's kind of stable, non-life-threatening disease, it kind of seems like the strategy that's often used in melanoma makes sense, you know, taking a shot at maybe a lower risk chance, but getting a longer-term response.
1: Absolutely. I'm completely with you on that. And I think most patients who hear it described that way would make that choice as well. Almost every one of my patients who's been on a TKI first and then was switched on a clinical trial to one of these agents felt better on the experimental drug. So you're giving them a chance at a durable benefit, you're giving them a small chance at remission, and you're, from my toxicity point of view, you're probably improving quality of life. Now, will we have that flexibility? I don't know. I certainly hope we do. What will be the costs of all of this? That becomes an important factor when you're talking about potentially having agents that are approved, not just for two or three cancers, but potentially for eight or 10 cancers in the next several years, which is not inconceivable. You know, those have to be factored in. But just between you and me, I would like to use it first in the right patient.
0: So yeah, just between you, me, and like 50,000 oncologists listening to this. That's right. Let's move over and talk about something that really almost gets even more complex, which is how these agents fit into the management of melanoma. Can you talk about what we know broadly in terms of clinical trial results, and right now what this potentially means in terms of patient care? So we've had several
1: exciting publications this year looking at PD-1 blockade, in patients with metastatic disease, we've had one approval of pembrolizumab based on single-agent data from the Phase one trial of pembrolizumab, both in patients who had failed ipilimumab and who hadn't, and we saw durable benefit with pembrolizumab in metastatic melanoma patients that led the FDA to approve the drug, which is great, but it's a limited approval, meaning it's only approved for patients who's failed ipilimumab, and if their tumor has a BRAF mutation, which is about 40 or 50% of the entire population— they have to have failed both a Ipilimumab and a BRAF inhibitor. So the pembrolizumab approval is somewhat more limited than we'd like. That in part because a very similar PD-1 antibody nivolumab that we've talked about has shown data in now two phase three trials that is really impressive in my view, in part because we have head-to-head comparisons to a admittedly an old standard, which is chemotherapy, both in treatment naive patients, which was a recent New England Journal paper that Caroline Robert was the first author on. And then Jeff Weber, presented data of chemotherapy versus nivolumab in patients who'd failed at And in both cases, the data from our phase one experience was confirmed in the phase three trials, meaning response rates around 30% with nivolumab in both settings significantly improved over chemotherapy. And as I mentioned earlier, the toxicity, particularly the grade three, four toxicity, was less. And I would expect that this will translate into encouraging overall survival benefits in these groups as we get more follow-up. This will probably translate into improved quality of life for patients on these agents, and will almost certainly lead to the FDA approval of nivolumab in melanoma. So it's a very exciting time. We'll probably have two agents available for our patients. And then, you know, a good question will be, which one do you use? And the short answer will be it will be very hard to determine just based on the single-agent data without head-to-head comparisons, what are the relative benefits? My general statement would be both agents are active, both agents will be good for patients. There are very small differences, if any, between these agents. You know, maybe one potential advantage for pembrolizumab is that it can be given every three weeks, which would be a small benefit for patients, particularly if they have to travel to see their doctors. But from an efficacy standpoint, nivolumab looks very good. The next phase in this, though, as this continues to move, almost every month we have a new exciting development. The next phase in this will be randomized data coming from trials that compare the combination of CTLA-4 blockade with ipilimumab alone and the frontline application of CTLA-4 blockade, PD-1 blockade, or the combination. So that's data that we'll start seeing in the next year. And if it's as encouraging as the phase one experience, that will be another step beyond for our patients. The data that we saw last year from New England Journal of Medicine, from the Walchuk-Mario Schnall endeavor between Yale and Sloan Kettering, looking at the phase one combination of those two agents was very encouraging. As I mentioned before, response rates at least twice as high as with single agent PD-1. And even though the adverse events rates were higher, they all seemed manageable. We didn't see new side effects. And the responses were dramatic in their depth, meaning we were seeing patients in that experience with 80 or 90 or 100% shrinkage of their disease. And why that's so exciting to me is because it's those patients who are much more likely to have those remissions, to have the benefit to stop the drug, and for the benefit to last. So it may be that the combinations not only increase the response rate two times, but they increase the tail of the curve, and that would be truly exciting for our patients. So then we'd have single-agent CTLA-4, we'd have single-agent PD-1, and the combinations available for community oncologists.
0: What about the current role of high-dose interleukin and renal cell with these other immunotherapy agents not quite there yet? We did a poll recently of oncologists asking about their choice of upfront treat, and it was interesting how many started with IL-2. Well,
1: it's an interesting answer that was given here. The 23% for hydose il 2 sort of makes me feel good, although in reality, that number is probably closer to 5% in the real world, or less, as far as the number of these patients who are actually seeing hydose il 2 That would be what we would offer outside of a trial for two reasons. One, in hands of experienced clinicians, it's relatively safe. The other drugs on this list work just as well after immunotherapy fails, and it can offer a small number of patients a durable benefit, which is the benefit that most of our patients with metastatic disease are really looking for. They're looking for treatment, come off treatment, benefit lasts for several years, And at least in our trials with Hydrocyl-2, which is admittedly a select group of patients, it's about 10% of patients or so can
0: have a durable benefit that lasts years. We were talking before about anti-PD-L1 antibodies related to RCC. What do we know about these agents in melanoma?
1: Well, they've been tested. Several companies have looked at the single agent activity, and it seems somewhat less than PD-1 alone in melanoma. And that's in part why most of the PD-L1 agents that I am aware of are not going forward towards pivotal trials as single agents. Because the assumption is that while they're active, they're somewhat less active probably than PD-1. You can't say that with certainty because there have been no head-to-head trials. But you can see based on the way these are being developed, they're often being developed in combination with other agents. So, for example, pdl one blockade combined with BRAF blockade, BRAF-MEC blockade. There are a variety of trials that are looking at that. Or PDL1 blockade combined with CTLA4 blockade. Those are other strategies. And it's conceivable that those might be valuable as well, in part because toxicity might be less. When you think about combining a less toxic PD-1 pathway blocker with CTLA-4 blockade, maybe it'll be less toxic, and that would be an advantage for some patients for sure. But also the concept of targeting the BRAF pathway in melanoma along with an immune checkpoint has been exciting in the preclinical arena with mouse models, for example, but has yet to sort of emerge in the clinic. But there's at least you know a couple of reasons why that might be a good idea for patients, and certainly that's something that needs to be explored further.
0: What about the patient with BRAF-positive melanoma? There's been a lot of debate over the last few years, particularly about the sequencing of these therapies. There, it's the issue of you have IPI. Theoretically, you might have an anti-PD-1 antibody versus BRAF inhibition or combinations. You have the interleukin-2 as an issue. How do you think through the BRAF-positive patient in terms of placing immunotherapy?
1: Well, I have a bias, as we've spoken about, towards giving patients one, two, and sometimes three shots at immunotherapy before switching to targeted therapy in both kidney cancer and melanoma in the majority of patients, but not in every patient. There's no question that BRAF blockade is active. It's tremendously active. There's no question that BRAF-MEC combination adds to BRAF-only blockade. So in my BRAF-mutated patients, when I'm going to treat them. I use the combination now as our standard of care. That said, unless a patient has symptoms from their melanoma, I would offer them immunotherapy first for the majority of patients. Maybe not all patients, but the majority for a couple of reasons. One, because of the potential for durable benefit that we talked about and the lack of need of subsequent therapy, which is appealing to patients. But also we know that BRAF inhibition works very well in immunotherapy failures. That's where it was initially proven to be effective. We know it can salvage someone who's progressing on ipilimumab. And the opposite may not be true in some patients. and It's one of my concerns about the field going forward is that I've had some patients and others have had patients where when they're on BRAF first and then they progress, sometimes when you stop that blockade, they progress more rapidly. And they often become difficult to treat effectively with immunotherapy, which takes admittedly much longer to have its impact. It doesn't have an impact in days to weeks. It's more like weeks to sometimes months to have an impact. So I've missed the window in a couple of patients to try to get them immunotherapy if I start with BRAF, First, we actually published on this in Cancer earlier this year. Dr. Ackerman was the first author, and it's a retrospective look at a large group of patients, but admittedly a biased look. And what we found is there are a subset that if they start with BRAF therapy, they may not get to immunotherapy. It's certainly something that needs to be studied prospectively. So until we have randomized prospective data, we can't say for sure what to start with. But in generally, in the asymptomatic patient who doesn't have autoimmune disease, for example, I generally st- start with immunotherapy first.
0: And in terms of which immunotherapy strategy, at least right now, you mentioned that to use pembrolizumab, you have to have used IPI first. And I don't know, just clinically, it seems like you'd want to use the anti-PD-1 first.
1: Well, it depends on your perspective. Certainly from a toxicity point of view, PD-1 is much easier to deal with. And certainly from a response rate point of view, the response rates are certainly higher with PD-1 blockade. But there are a couple of issues. One, we don't have prospective data on what the best sequence is, but there is a trial that's looking at that. So I'll be very interested to see what that trial shows, is compared IPI-NEVO to NEVO-IPI, what's better? Is there a more tolerable approach? Because it may turn out that while one approach seems better initially, the sequence is, say, more toxic or less effective. You know, we need to have prospective data. But also, I think sort of the issue is, from a practical point of view, we can't, Give PD 1 first, at least not yet. So it's not quite a question that comes up a ton, but it may turn out that the sequence, there may be a preferential sequence that is easier to deal with. And I think the other thing that I would say about PD 1 blockade is the responses, while durable on treatment, We don't know if they're as lasting when you stop the drug as they are with interleukin-2 or ipilimumab, you know, because now we have years of follow-up on those patients, and we know the tail of the curve seems to flatten out after several years of follow-up, several years off treatment.
0: What about the current role of high-dose interleukin in the upfront setting in melanoma? It seems there's somewhat of a split in investigators in terms of starting with ipilimumab or IL-2, We're attempting to get them into an upfront trial of an anti-PD-1 antibody. Any thoughts about the optimal sequence right now?
1: So what I would say is and we're dealing with this to a certain extent in melanoma where we have PD1 or PDL1 trials for frontline patients and we you know the question comes up trial versus hidosil2 and most of us including us folks who give a lot of hidosil2 we choose checkpoint inhibition first for a variety of reasons one response rates are higher the overall survival is very encouraging toxicity is much less And in that setting, it's hard to argue, given the risks that are associated with IL-2, that you should not offer someone PD-1 first. That being said, I think we really need to understand, is dose il 2 safe to give in the PD-1 failure setting? Because most patients who get PD-1 will eventually need something else. That's a question that needs to be addressed. But I think in your hypothetical, I think most of us would try a checkpoint strategy first. Right now, we give HIDOS IL-2 first because we know it gives people two shots, HIDOS IL-2, then ipilimumab. We know IPI is relatively safe before HIDOS IL-2. The opposite may not be as true because IPI and its side effects can often stay around for a while, and we've seen at least one or two cases where we amplified toxicities that we thought were in the background by giving someone HIDOS IL-2. So if we're gonna give both, we give IL-2 first. But that's going to change pretty quickly when PD-1 becomes available in the front line.